Hey friends, this is Andy Storch, and I'm excited to announce that we are bringing the Talent Development Think Tank Conference back on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. Yes, you might remember we hosted this conference for the first time in January 2020, and it was a huge hit with everyone telling us it was the best conference they ever attended. And of course, we were looking forward to running it again in 2021 until the pandemic hit. That's when I launched the Talent Development Think Tank membership community, and that's been going strong since May of 2020. But I know how valuable it is to get people together in person, and that's why we are excited to be bringing the conference back again on February 22nd and 23rd in Sonoma, California. I'm committed to making this a highly engaging and interactive event where you can connect, learn, and grow together with other talent development professionals. This is going to be the best event out there in talent development, and I would love to see you there. If you want to find more information and get your tickets today, the website is tdtt.us conference. That's tdtt.us slash conference. I hope to see you there. Welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat, a show where I interview business executives, talent development professionals, and thought leaders to find out what has been successful and challenging in the world of talent development. My objective is to share ideas, valuable lessons, tools, advice, and trends. My hope is that all of this will ultimately help you, the listener, expand your knowledge, grow your career, and accelerate your success as a talent development professional. Welcome, everybody, to the Talent Development Hot Seat. I am your host, Andy Storch, and I am grateful that you are joining me today for a conversation with Karen Torinite. And Karen is a Partner and Global Diversity and Inclusion Officer at EY, a global professional services firm with over 270,000 employees in 150 countries. In her role, Karen is responsible for maximizing the diversity of EY professionals across the globe by enhancing EY's inclusive culture. Karen frequently consults with clients on diversity and inclusiveness matters, serving as a thought leader regularly in the global media like the Financial Times and The Economist, and now this podcast as well. Karen, welcome to the Talent Development Hot Seat. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Andy. Yeah, great to have you on. And uh, I believe it's been a while since we originally uh, originally reached out to you, but uh, I think you were referred to me by Liz Weissman, which is uh, quite a you know quite a big name to be you know coming from. And she was uh, of course on this podcast a while back, and I've gotten tons of great feedback on that interview, talking about you know her best selling book, Multipliers, and just a really great candid discussion about leadership and accidental diminishers and and all of those things. So really cool to have you on. Absolutely. Fantastic. And I love her. I think she's fantastic. And, you know, I, I think about the synergies of her work and the multiplying concept that's similar to the work around inclusion is we're trying to um, maximize the benefits that diverse perspectives can lend to an organization. So it's also another way to multiply and to grow. Absolutely. So we're going to talk about uh, diversity and inclusion, the importance of that your approach at EY, maybe get into some of the business reasons. Um, I also want to talk about the concept of business, uh, or concept or business of belonging, uh, which you mentioned before we got on. Uh, before we do, you, you've gotten into a really big role there, Chief Diversity and Inclusiveness Officer for a huge professional services firm. Tell me a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. Thanks for asking. So uh, EY is professional services and we do auditing, accounting, tax, uh, due diligence, consulting work. The reason why I mention that is uh, I started my career with EY many years ago in tax. So I'm sure that sounds very sexy and exciting to all of your listeners. And so I'm a CPA. And then um, a number of years into that, I actually was asked to do a rotation into talent. 
by one of the managing partners. And uh, so I did, uh, I'm probably on the longest rotation that you've ever seen. Um, and so I don't know if that's good or bad, but I, but it went quite well. And from there, I um, led talent for the U.S. and Canada, as well as our Northeast, which is one of our largest P&Ls around the world. So I had uh, a, quite a bit of experience on the ground, in the field, in the center, at the top, at headquarters. And then a few years ago, our CEO was looking to expand our investment and prioritization around diversity and inclusion as a business lever and asked me to come on board and do that. So it's been an amazing learning experience. It's been humbling too, but I think it's been a great match for having the client serving experience as well as talent experience to look at all of those levers combined and to bring this work to the forefront. And, you know, it's also helps to be able to do this at a company where it really matters and it doesn't matter just as a soft kind of thing. It matters for business and as a, as a huge growth lever for us. Yeah, and it's really uh, it's telling that you've stayed with EY throughout your career. Obviously, there's been a strong reason to, to stay and work there. And I've actually done some work with EY and uh, as well as some other professional services firms. And I've always been impressed with the, with the culture there and, and the way the firm has been built. And it's, I think it's really great that you have that experience as a tax professional going out and working with people and, and helping define the culture. You've been in that role. You know what it's like to be out there working with clients versus just kind of coming from you know, HR only and trying to direct some of those things. Has that been really helpful for you in, in you know, gaining empathy for the people you're working with? Yeah, I think, I think for all the reasons you mentioned. And I would not diminish the expertise required to be a true HR professional. That's very, very valuable. And so I'm not suggesting that my type of experience would be more valuable than that. But having had both, I think it does allow for less of an empathy gap, so to speak, as it relates to what's happening on the front line and people that are leading teams around the world that are trying to navigate in a 24 by 7 business environment. That's incredibly demanding. So I think to be able to match that with true HR acumen, um, as well as diversity and inclusion technical expertise is helpful. But I think it's it's not only in practice, but also maybe in translation to also make it consumable for people and to make it realistic so that it actually matters to them. And, and I think the other reason why it's, it's important to have both um, from a credibility perspective, and it's been helpful here, is to help people to understand that diversity and inclusion is not a net sum game. It's not that Andy wins and Karen loses or Karen wins and Andy loses. This is about making the pie bigger so that we could have more Karens, more Andys, and more opportunities for more professionals to advance and to grow and for our business to grow. So it's uh, made a big business impact, but I think it hasn't certainly been easy for me or for my team or for others. It's, it's a long haul, which I think probably all of your listeners can relate to. Yeah. The burdens put on all of us, especially with people being asked to do more with less. But I do think that it has been an accelerator from um, a credibility and relationship perspective. If you work in talent development, you know that your job has become more important than ever. The problem is there's so much uncertainty and noise out in the business world and things are changing so fast, it's hard to know where to go and what tools and resources to use to solve your problems. That's why I recently launched the Talent Development Think Tank community as a central and safe place to access information, ask questions, and talk with other L&D professionals like you so that you can achieve your goals and accelerate your career. 
Join today to get instant access to our online platform and community of ambitious, helpful talent development professionals who understand your world and can help you solve your problems. Right now, I'm offering 25% off the subscription price to podcast listeners. Just go to talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT for 25% off. That's talentdevelopmentthinktank.com and use code HOTSEAT. Thanks, and on to the episode. I love that perspective about diversity and inclusion not being a net sum game. And it's really an abundant mindset, which I like to take with everything I do. And, um, you know, it makes me wonder, okay, when you started at EY, how, how big was the firm? Do you remember? Oh, gosh. Um, I think it was um, 30,000 people. Wow. Okay. So 30,000 people. So if at that time you took a net sum game and said, listen, uh, you know, the percentage of our workforce is heavily, you know, probably white male at the time, right? We need to be, we need to get more diversity, which means we need to have, let's say, more people of color, more women or whatever it is. Does that mean you have to let some of the other, the white men go that are already there? Or do you can just grow and increase that pie, right? And, and focus on where it goes from there. And the company's grown eight times since you started there when it only had 30,000 people. Right. That's right. Well, I mean, it's, you know, let's also be practical in the sense that I'm very fortunate that I'm in a high growth organization, right? Yeah. That also helps. But our, you know, our CEO would say we've grown because of this. Mm. Would not have had the success and grown the top line, the bottom line without diversity and inclusion. And that doesn't mean as a function of, of course, I'd like to say that we've, we've supported this and us to lead through progress faster, but without diverse and inclusive perspectives, whether they be on our teams or interfacing with our clients, we know from research that it has uh, a direct correlation to top line business growth. And I can give you a few examples as well as being able to do more and to amplify your business as well as it matters to bottom line business growth margin. Uh, and I'll give you an example. Let's talk about the, the concept of women. Uh, if you like research, I do. And we're accountants. So we really like studies here. So there's a reason why I do that and to try to attract more people to the topic, um, certainly in house. An example would be, uh, we did a study with the Peterson Institute of, of Economics. You may be familiar with Dr. Adam Posen. Uh, and he's an economist. He's not a DNI person. Uh, and the study that he did, um, interestingly, that I really like on this particular topic is across 22,000 companies, uh, private and publicly held companies around the world in over 90 countries. And his work determined a whole host of really interesting data points. But one of them, as an example, as it relates to women, found that if you had at least 30% women on a management team, a company had 15 percentage points more in revenues and six percentage points more in net margin. That's 15 and six more, Andy, in addition to their their typical uh, revenues and margins. So that's a tremendous amount of money that companies could be leaving on the table by not having 30% women around the around that table. So they, they found that it mattered, matters for um, understanding and for customer orientation, for accuracy, for risk, for quality, et cetera. So a whole host of different aspects contributed to that growth. So, you know, it really matters when you're talking about money and it really matters about when you're talking about business growth. Well, let's talk about that because I, I did want to talk about the business case for diversity and inclusion. I think a lot of people think about diversity and inclusion and where companies are going. And, and a lot of people think, well, yes, it's the right thing to do, right? Either way, it's the right thing to do. But at the same time, we're running a business here. We have to do the best thing for our shareholders, for our stakeholders. 
what, you already talked a little bit about this stat around having women on the management team. What is the business case for improving diversity and inclusion? Well, certainly that's one of them, but there's a whole host of um, different business reasons. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we all care about being more accurate. And I think we care about um, making quality decisions. And there, there's research out there that shows uh, multidisciplinary as well as diverse teams produce better business results. They produce more accurate results, et cetera. That's incredibly important. Look at for us, a segment of our work is audit and tax work. That better be right. An example, uh, quoting another professor whose work I like a lot is um, Dr. Kathy Phillips from Columbia Business School. And she does a whole host of work around homogeneous versus heterogeneous teams. And the work, as an example, this is a, this is a business case matter, uh, which show that um, heterogeneous teams are more accurate more of the time than homogeneous teams. And in fact, the other piece of that is that homogeneous teams tend to be overconfident in their accuracy more so than heterogeneous teams. So all the more reason why businesses really can't afford to have homogeneous teams making their decisions. Uh, one, because it tends to be less accurate. They tend to be more confident, inaccurately confident. So think about where businesses have come into to trouble with groupthink. And so seeing around corners and seeing different perspectives is much healthier and much better for commercial reasons. And to your point on um, people thinking that diversity inclusion is a nice thing to do. And by the way, my job isn't necessarily to evangelize for how other companies should think. It is certainly the research that we've seen inside and outside works for us. And we, we prove it out all the time that it's not necessarily what I call my three C's. Uh, originally it was compliance and then character, the right thing to do. But now it's highly commercial. And that's the third aspect, meaning we win or lose business, Andy, based on the diverse teams that we bring forward to pitch for business. Um, I've also seen companies asked to leave pitches because they did not bring a diverse team. And it's not always from a diverse looking buyer. Sometimes it's quite surprising, but there are a lot of companies that truly care about it. And I'll give you an example. Uh, we were pitching for an audit uh, of a client and uh, we were one of a number of uh, vendors of applying for that type of work. And they told us, and this was an all-white male um, audit committee, an all-white male executive committee at this particular client. And they selected us, which was fantastic. And they told us that they selected us for two reasons. One was industry expertise in their industry. And the second reason was that we were the only uh, vendor that brought a uh, diverse partner team to service them. And so at the face of it, you might have thought, oh, it doesn't matter to this company. They may not value right. that because look at them. But they were front and, front and center to say, listen, we love that you brought us a black male first partner, a white female second partner, and then a diverse team throughout all the other ranks. And the reason why we think that's important, not only because you're authentically living what you say you do, but because we, we do say that it's important to us, but that also they said, you know, we're not diverse. And by having you audit us as a diverse perspective, that you're bringing that diversity to bear, you're bringing those perspectives that we don't have in-house and we are not going to have tomorrow. We may have in the future, but you can bring those perspectives today. And so they felt like that would be a much more productive and more accurate audit team for them to lean on. That's great. And if you're looking for a business case for diversity and inclusion, 
you're talking about winning uh, an audit that I assume was probably a pretty large deal. Um, and those usually last for, uh, what is it, two, three, four years, the, the rotation. That's serious business that you won a lot because of the diversity of the team. That's right. And then, Andy, the other side of it is, it, the, the other aspect of it can happen in the sense that I'll share with you another story. We, and this was not me, we and six other companies, and all really good companies, were pitching for a very large non-audit project, but a consulting project. And we were waiting for, I think probably a lot of your listeners have pitched for business. And we all know how much time and money goes into even showing up for a pitch. Uh, that's a very big business investment to even do that. So there's seven teams there, seven companies. And before any of the teams were brought in to do their uh, roadshow, um, the company came out and asked one of the teams to leave and to not even pitch because they had brought four white straight men one country to pitch on a global project. Wow. They said, thank you for coming. Uh, but since you brought four white straight men from one country, uh, not even represent, we don't know how that you would be able to bring that global perspective to this pitch. Thank you for coming. And we hope to see you next time with a more diverse team. Flash forward, we won that pitch for a whole host of reasons. And we had been one of the other six teams to, to win that pitch. And winning is important, of course. But the other reason why I mentioned that story is the company that was asked to leave is a very, very good company. And they are very thoughtful on this and they're very disciplined on it. So it can happen to all of us. And it has happened to us too. And we're just, you know, sometimes we may not be as disciplined about it as we should be. And to realize that it really, it really actually does matter to some companies. It certainly matters to us when we buy services. But I think it matters to many companies more so than people realize. And that change has happened uh, very fast in the last three to five years. Yeah, so interesting uh, and something for everybody to be thinking about. Uh, it's not just about, do you bring that? And I think the biggest business case here is, as you mentioned earlier, diverse teams are going to pro produce more accurate business results because they have this different backgrounds that come together and, and they're going to you know, see things differently and, and have different ideas and I think be more innovative. Uh, but if you're doing any work with other companies, they might be looking at what your team makeup looks like and deciding how they perceive you and whether they do want to do business with you as well. This episode of the Talent Development Hot Seat is sponsored by Advantage Performance Group. Advantage is the first place to call when you need leaders to lead, sellers to sell, and your business to flourish. We specialize in connecting organizations with exceptional learning solutions to help them turn strategy into action and get their people doing the best work of their lives. And we're also proud to be providing tons of great content and inspiration to you and everyone out there during troubled times. You can go to advantageperformance.com to find any of our weekly webinars, insights, white papers, and blogs we've been putting out to help you survive and thrive during challenging times. That website again is advantageperformance.com. And now back to the show. Oh, and I wanted to go back. You, you mentioned the three C's, compliance, character, and commercial. Mm -hmm. uh, so the commercial is the, the business aspect, actually going and getting revenue as a result. Is that what that is? Uh, can you explain the three C's? Let me give you a few aspects. It's a, it could be revenues, 
It could be that your consumer cares. Um, it also could mean that you could have a greater empathy and understanding with your customer base. An example would be uh, there was a study done by the Center for Talent Innovation. I think it was called their IDM study. And basically it showed, for example, if you had a woman buyer and you were presenting with to a woman customer, and this is not an EY study, this is, this is any company, and you had a woman on the team helping you to sell to that customer that you were 144% more likely to understand that customer's needs and to be able to bring um, better solutions to that customer. The same number holds true from an LGBT perspective. Instead of that 144 with an LGBT with an LGBT consumer match, it's 155%. Uh, from an ethnicity perspective, 152%. So that's about, you know, about business. I would also share with you that it really matters from a business perspective, the employee experience. And so we see that as well. Uh, an example would be um, you know, being an employer of choice where people want to start their career, where people want to have their career, where people want to come to work every day. You know, we do some studies that relate the concept of, of how employees feel related to diversity and inclusion. An example would be we look at a really important fact uh, when we ask our people what they think and how they score on, I feel free to be myself at work every day. Um, that might sound like a really squishy question. And uh, we built this into our model about five years ago. And the reason why it was incredibly important to us, that question was because it represented across your unique differences, do you feel like you can bring your full self to work? That matters from an inclusion perspective. And certainly think about how you feel when you can be yourself at work. I, I know how I feel on those days. I assume you must too. Totally. I work from home. I be my, I'm myself at home. I work every day. Well, I don't, but certainly, you know, how you, if you can feel like you're an outsider at work or do you feel like you're an insider at work, that's a very different mind share that you're right. bringing up today, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, our studies showed, and this had a really high correlation with other business results. So, for example, for the business units where they had the highest scores in being themselves at work, they had very high retention scores, likely intuitive. They had very high engagement scores overall. But then also to share, they also had um, the highest revenues, as well as maybe even more importantly, they had the highest scores in brand favorability, meaning that how their customers rate how they show up, meaning and their services. And I think that's something that I would, I would actually coin as rather priceless. Yeah, absolutely. So something else I wanted to dig in on there too, to make sure people understand, uh, and maybe this is my own former naivete, but I think a lot of times we hear diversity and your chief diversity and inclusiveness officer. I think a lot of people focus in on the diversity piece and say, well, that just means we need to get more people of color, LGBT women in the workforce. Right. Talk to me about the importance of the inclusiveness aspect, because if you don't have that, what I've read in my own research and talking to other people, then you don't get the bigger, you don't get the better business results just because you have other people with different backgrounds, because if they don't feel like they can speak up, then it doesn't matter. Right. You know, difference just for difference is not going to be as effective. So, I mean, you're right on the money with everything that you're talking about. And how we look at it is, you know, the diversity matters. And we're very specific about talking about all the differences that are important. So you mentioned a bunch of them. Some of them are visible, some of them are invisible, but they also include differences across technical expertise, differences across geography and where you work, differences in religion, um, differences in 
work experiences. You know, did you work at someplace else before you worked at EY? Were you trained someplace else? Were you in the military, as an example, before you came to EY? Those things actually build somebody's skills, their resilience, and their capabilities. But are you leveraging them? Inclusion is about whether or not you're actually leveraging those differences. Because you can have people that are different, but if you never tap into that difference on your team, then you are likely not maximizing that business opportunity. So that's why you need both in order to leverage those differences. Also, there are some studies that show if you have difference without inclusion, that actually you could have a much bumpier business and actually it could be a negative. And I've seen both of those things play out. So it's dramatically different to be able to leverage those differences. And also, you know, a lot of companies say, to me, like they struggle with, okay, so we're bringing in all this diverse talent, but then we don't do anything with it from there. And that can be a real gap. And that can not feel so good for an organization. uh, Because then you have people that are quite disappointed, if they don't have a sense of belonging, once they get into the environment. And if you're not really leveraging with their differences, or they feel like they need to conform to what this a standard might be, um, that can actually create greater frustration and lack of engagement, which of course is in, impacts services, impacts productivity, how somebody feels as a team member, all of those things. Yeah, that stuff is so important. And I hadn't thought about that until I read a book. I, I had Shane Snow on a while back, wrote a book called Dream Teams, where he has a lot of great research in there about um, exactly what you said, that difference without inclusion could actually be a negative. You get less done. So it's so important to have that um, inclusion piece. Okay, so you talked about a lot of different backgrounds, You know, whether it's race or country or gender or military service. One of the big ones in the workforce is generations, right? Is age. And that's something that I, for a long time, I don't think that was really addressed as far as diversity is. And, and I have been, I don't hear this as much anymore. But I, you know, I've been facilitating workshops for eight, nine years in, in this world. And I had had many experiences where the older, the more senior generation will start this chain of complaining about millennials, right? <laughs> and now we don't hear that anymore. Millennials are now the largest uh, subset of the workforce, right? Generationally, now we have Gen Z coming in. And I, I assume we're going to start hearing complaining about that soon. But it's so important to think about how do we work with them and adapt to you know, the way things are changing rather than just hoping things are going to stay the same. So I know you do some work in that area as well. You know, what are you seeing there? How does EY address, um, you know, sort of the, the shifts in generations as the younger force, workforce continues to come in? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I think it's also very common for all of the more senior generations to complain about the more junior generations. I, I'm a Gen Xer, yeah. but I, at one point I was young in my career and I came in and I do remember the people above me complaining about our generation as well. It, uh, it's been going on since the beginning of time, right? The young, these young kids, they just don't get it. And then one day they grow up to be senior leaders and then they're complaining about the, the young kids. But I would say, you know, some companies are, are positive on this. Some companies are less so. And it's, it's up to their particular environment. We're quite bullish on millennials for a whole host, whole host of reasons. And, and one thing also give you a sense of our landscape. So most U.S. companies and most global companies are about a third millennial at this point, maybe slightly higher than a third, maybe 35, 36%. And so that's a big chunk that people have to pay attention to. For us, we're at about 78% millennial. So if you think about that. Wow. (laughs) You're outnumbered. 
Yeah, that's a really big number. So as an example, to put it into age context for people that might be interested, our average age of our employees is about 27. The average age of most companies is about 47. Okay. So I either have, so people will either look at, look at us and they'll say to me, oh my gosh, I feel sorry for you because what a tension point. Or they might say they're jealous because how cool to have that kind of um, vibrancy in the workplace um, and that kind of turnover. I would say on the positive for us, how we look at it is it's forced infusion of innovation every single year because we have to be trending ahead. We have to be modifying our programs, whether we want to or not. We usually do what we want to, but we have to pay attention and, and be being on the cutting edge of that. So we think of it as, as quite positive, and it also does allow us the opportunity to, to modernize on a very regular basis. And, and then as it relates to having different members on the team, we do think that that as a practice is a very healthy thing to keep it moving so that people don't get stagnant and so that you have different perspectives on, on a whole uh, range. So for us, it's, it's very positive. I will share with you just a few things. You know, we've done a number of studies. We do a lot of studies internally, but we do a lot of studies externally as well. Um, so if people that probably work at many of the companies of those that might listen to this kind of podcast so that we can trend ahead. And so we can also see what might be important for people that work at EY today or who might work at EY tomorrow, like Gen Zers, or who might work at another company and come join us later, what people really want. And, and a few things that I do see as being incredibly important for millennials and Zers is as it relates to um, work and life and as it relates to both genders, finding flexibility incredibly important. Um, I think sometimes people tend to think that flexibility was solely an issue for women or solely an issue for working mothers. And actually to the contrary, you know, based on our studies, actually flexibility is uh, just as important for men as women and even more so for men. They just don't talk about it as much and they are actually more inclined in some of our studies to leave an opportunity or not accept a promotion opportunity that didn't afford them flexibility. It's just something that people don't talk about as much. And uh, another study for the millennials and the Zers is that um, where people used to think that women were less ambitious um, or less confident in their careers than men. Actually, our studies would show of millennials and Zers that they're actually just as ambitious, if not even more so than men, and that they're quite confident in their careers. And then the last piece I would just share with you uh, on that, Andy, is to focus on the concept of dual career households. Right. And that is, that is a big thing that's really been impactful for us as an organization to be aware of. For example, our study showed that millennial households are two times as likely to be dual career as their boomer counterparts, meaning as boomers experienced, um, and then significantly more than Xers did as well. So this is relevant from an EY perspective, and it really mattered to us um, because at times, if you think about who in HR or in business management, et cetera, who's setting policies and who's determining what's important. I used the words empathy gap before. There could be an empathy gap if those are being set by people that either had not dual career, meaning two full-time workers in a household, is a big difference than only having one or only having one full-time, one part-time. If now 80, almost 80% of millennial, millennial households are run by dual career families, 
that is a big dynamic difference in programs that need to be offered in the way we need to work in order to make it sustainable. It impacts mobility. It impacts travel. And it also impacts, uh, you know, the level of importance and prioritization that employees are going to place on job selection, job acceptance, a whole host of things. Yeah, that's fascinating. And I, I love this conversation. I have to be careful not to go too deep on it. But when you think about uh, the younger generation, millennials and Gen Z, especially, what you, you talked about the importance of workplace flexibility, you know, this dual career household, uh, women being more ambitious than previous generations, which is excellent to hear. And of course, that lends to workplace flexibility because presumably many of them will have children at some point if they haven't already and they need, uh, may need that flexibility. What are you seeing from a development perspective? I, you know, what I'm seeing is that the younger generation either wants it more or is more vocal about wanting career development, knowing what their career path is, knowing where they're going to go and placing a higher importance on that than previous generations maybe. What are you seeing there from a development perspective? So I'm not an expert in all the training and development programs, but based on what I've seen from our surveys as well as from our people, our millennials and even our Zers, because we have both in our workplace at this point, are very focused on continuous improvement, continuous professional improvement. They seek out learning and opportunities, whereas I think my generation was like, ugh, okay, great, we have to go to this now, um, and I'll do everything that I need to do technically, and then all of my executive learning, but... It was more of my curriculum and I would meet all my professional requirements. Now we're finding that um, people are self-learning and reaching out for all of these things to learn to learn different aspects. So I'll give you an example. We created something called badges here uh, where people could get advanced digital learning and people could sign up to do this. These things are like 40, 60, 80 hours on their own, Andy. And the uptake is huge. People that want to have, you know, digital fluency or they want to learn something that may not have anything to do with their job, but they want to learn it. As an example, we have an inclusive intelligence badge that's offered all around the world. And we have one, you know, so basically you could do it at a bronze, silver, et cetera level. These are hugely time consuming. And these are deep levels of expertise. We've only had this badge for diversity and inclusion for a few months. And we have almost a thousand people that have started these badges. And these are hours and hours of people doing these things on their own time. And they don't have to. They get credit for doing it because it's cool, but they don't have to. So we see that kind of uptake. The other thing that I think is so incredibly important for companies now is to have their purpose aligned with what is the organization doing and what can their their workplace be contributing to the the bigger whole and the broader good. And I do think that millennials and Zers find it really important to know where does their work matter for the broader good, as well as to have community involvement as part of their development. That is tremendously important. So if some organizations haven't seen that yet, and they're, and they're really looking to attract and retain millennials and having um, community as part of a development curriculum and a volunteer curriculum, not just for a day, but to have some type of um, involvement with that is incredibly important. And I would add that to the development portfolio. Yeah, that's so it's interesting to hear. And I feel like we could dive into a whole another discussion about badging because I am very intrigued by that. And it's amazing what people do will do for a little bit of recognition, you know, this this whole badging process. And I want to be clear on you know, we were talking about generations, and of course, everybody is different. Um, I never like to generalize, but just it's interesting to hear 
you know, where things might be going. And generally, millennials, we're talking about 1980 to 1996, the year they were born. So that's around 23 to 38 right now. And then Gen Z would be anybody after that. So they're starting to come into the workforce. And you mentioned you have some Gen Z, some really fascinating stuff on generations. One other group that I wanted to talk about, um, you mentioned before we started recruiting is LGBTQ. We're recording this at the beginning of June. It's World Pride month or period, whatever you would call it. Um, there are parades going on, uh, obviously well-recognized in society. But I still don't hear a lot of companies talking specifically about this group. What is EY doing there? What's your perspective on you know, serving the LGBT community? Yeah, well, this is a very exciting time for us. And, and we've been very uh, supportive and very involved with the LGBTQ plus agenda for 20 years now. So this is part of, this is very front and center, part of our diversity inclusion agenda, as well as our ally program. And this is around the world. And, um, and so we're very explicit about that, including, you know, things like, I know people think policies are boring, but actually we don't. Policies give people something to, to point towards and stand up for. And we have a global non-discrimination and inclusion policy, which is explicit of LGBT plus and safety, respect, anti-bullying, all of that. And that may seem like, oh, that's no big deal. It's just a global policy. However, you know, we're very serious that that's including LGBT plus in over 150 countries. That is not an easy thing to do, given that I think um, the latest number is over 70 countries criminalize LGBT. So, you know, that's what we're showing for our people, that you will be safe at EY and that we respect that. So I think those things really matter. And I, I just mentioned that as to what we're doing with real substance and real meat around, you know, campaigns and, and words and slogans and all of those kinds of things to really make it a safe and respectful environment. And, you know, if I can take a step back, Andy, on why it's important, the OECD just listed a, um, did a study and uh, they found that LGBT plus uh, professionals around the world are 7% less likely to be employed. Their labor earnings are 4% lower on average, and they're 11% less likely to reach uh, management positions. So the, the barriers that exist in workplaces are very real. And I think uh, there'll be an NYU study coming out uh, that we are part of, along with Microsoft and Dow and others, uh, that'll come out, I think, in the next within the next month or so, that will also talk about that there are differences between soft countries and hard countries on this, and that it can be very different as to an experience that an employee might find, and whether that be on mobility or on advancement or on safety. So it could be safe at EY, but you know we take it very seriously that we want employees to feel safe at our client spaces too, as well as if we're moving people around the world or we're hosting global events uh, we want to make sure that people can bring their partners to those countries where those events are. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done in both soft and hard countries. And even in, a, in what's considered a soft country, meaning an easy country like the U.S., um, you still can be fired for being gay in, in 26 states. So we can't claim victory yet just because there are a lot of companies. We're in very good company with a lot of companies that are really trying to move this this continuum, and I, I, you know, I think awareness is really important, and to talk about that. But you know, I think we need to move from like I look at it as a continuum: awareness to tolerance, but moving beyond tolerance, because I think sometimes 
because some people are less confident with it or comfortable with it, that we'd like to move it to acceptance. You know, my end game would be to move from acceptance to full cohesion, that this is part of where you actually don't even see the stitches anymore of trying to put these teams together and put the differences together. So we've been involved with um, the LGBT agenda and a good good measure for those that might be listening to get involved with is uh, the Human Rights Campaign and their CEI index. We've been on uh, gotten 100% for the past 14 years. That is not easy. And for those companies that have worked on this, they change, they raise the bar every year. Like for example, this year, there are a number of transgender benefits that need to be offered, as well as recognition in supplier diversity and um, providing benefits for same-sex spouses and things like that. So they keep raising it, which is really good. So we've also found by being involved with these things, it's helped make us better. And it's helped us challenge and not kind of get complacent, meaning say, okay, we've been there, done that, we do enough. It's very fast paced and the world is moving quickly and other companies are not sitting still. And to be competitive and to grow and to maximize these opportunities for our employees, we, we need to continue to push ourselves and, and, and we're trying to do that. I love it. Sounds like you're, you're definitely leading the way there and, uh, and setting a high standard, which is great. And I know many other companies are either doing the same or will follow you. Uh, you mentioned things being fast paced. Uh, we only have a few minutes left before you got to take off to get to a show. <laughs> so what's been your biggest accomplishment? What's the thing you're most proud of in your career so far? Ah, gosh. Let's see. I think one of the things that I think is really exciting is um, that we've been moving. In addition to diversity and inclusion, one of our biggest levers has been around bringing the concept and the business of belonging to our world at EY to really up our game on not only are you included because we say you're included, but also working to have around the world for people to really feel like they belong every day at work. And the concept of belonging sounds really like a squishy word, but we know that there are real business benefits to this. And so I'm very proud, Andy, that this has actually gained traction given that it feels squishy, but the, real, the business reasons are there's increased engagement, increased productivity, and when people feel like they belong, as well as three and a half times more likely to be innovative if you feel like you belong, that's huge. That's huge. And I think, I don't know any company out there that's not trying to innovate and take their current workforce and innovate from that. Well, if somebody feels like they belong every day, that's a sure way to actually maximize that asset for your benefit. The other piece of it is when employees feel like they belong, they have significantly less stress and they have higher physical and mental health results. And that's from Dr. Valerie Perdue-Bonds, also from Columbia. So the reason why I mentioned this is so important, Andy, this is a win-win. It's not just a win for EY, it's a win for our employees and our partners, as well as a win for the business. So that's something that I'm particularly proud of, that we've been able to accomplish in pretty fast order, to take a concept like that and to up our game further to make our workplace a stellar workplace from a cultural perspective. So that to your point where you were asking me earlier about all these differences in the workplace, so that we can maximize those differences and maximize people's experience so that while they're here with us, that they really feel like they have the best experience possible. Very cool. And Karen, what's been your big, one of your biggest failures or mistakes in your career? What'd you learn from it? Oh, I have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we all do. 
Well, I don't know if this was a failure, but I was thinking about that um, because you know the team had mentioned to me, and I think authentically, I would say the concept of not underestimating the power of an apology and as a concept, because I think sometimes there's a, such a fear around apologies that it shows culpability or that you're wrong or, or that it shows weakness um, to say, I'm sorry. And I'll give you an example of when I think about one of the biggest doozies that I was in. And you may not even think this was a big deal, but for me, it certainly was. I was part of a team with eight key principles running different aspects of it. And like anything, you know, if there's one weak link in the fence, the whole fence goes down. The concept of the project went well. The product was great. Um, it was such a win. However, there was a, a flaw in how something was communicated. Okay, so there's one weak link. It was an unintentional flaw, had nothing to do with my area. However, it did kind of erode on the goodness of what we were delivering. And I was waiting for my colleague to apologize to one of our stakeholders about the flaw and what went wrong. And I thought I shouldn't apologize because it's not my lane right. for me to apologize yet. And so that I should uh, wait to do that because it wasn't for me to do. And that after he did, then I would jump in. But I thought it would be more appropriate for me to stand down, let that be handled through that function. And then I would jump into the whole rest of the conversation. But I realized you know, as a mistake and a lesson learned that, you know, by waiting, even on behalf of the whole team, that it actually just festers and it erodes the whole, the whole team's effort and that it really would have been okay for me to jump in sooner, which I did, but I waited four days. And the reality is I look at this and I will never do that again because I really should have jumped in right away and said, I'm really sorry of how this turned out. And that that wouldn't have that wouldn't have said that it was my fault, but I am sorry for how this turned out, and I would have liked for it to gone perfectly. And here's the lessons that we learned. And then, in all fairness, I learned that from my own mistake that quickly apologizing for whatever is necessary helps you to move on, get your lessons learned. Because we, you know, then as soon as I opened that door, then we found out different things that could have been done differently, things I could have done differently, and that I do impact now. And so not only does it lend to the credibility, I think it also, by apologizing and the power of an apology and apologizing soon, also builds trust and enhances relationships too. So that's a mistake that it might sound small to you, but it still sits in my stomach now that I wish I had called within the first day. I wish I had done that and not, not stayed in my lane and, and had apologized for the whole concept of it sooner. And so I've incorporated something like that from that mistake and that lesson learned that apologies are very powerful and it doesn't actually show weakness. It actually shows strength. That's uh, powerful right there. Karen, is there a book or a TED talk that has made a big impact on you or that you often recommend? Well, I like some of yours, especially Liz's uh, TED Talk, which is great, Liz Wiseman. Yep. But um, you know, I also like um, Angela Duckworth's Grit. I think her work around that is really important. Um, and, and the concept of that is um, it's not all IQ scores, et cetera, which are predictive of success. It quite often 
is a whole host of different items that um, have built resilience over time. And so I equate that also to the work that we do around diversity inclusion, thinking if somebody's actually experienced maybe being an underrepresented minority in any concept anywhere around the world, they likely have built up resilience and flexibility and agility skills, which help them to be wildly successful. So I think that's a good one. Cool. Multipliers by Liz Weissman and and uh, Grit by Angela Duckworth, both uh, really popular, great books there. Last question, Karen, for anybody listening who is, maybe they're in talent development, they're looking for ways to improve diversity and inclusion within their own organization. What's one more piece of advice you would give? I would say, one, if they want to educate themselves, I like HBRs. Um, those are pretty interesting if they like to use them for, for their research. There's fantastic research around glamour work versus office housework. Um, there's uh, tremendous work around Adam Grant's done around uh, moving beyond bias. And I think if you really want to get out there, in addition to looking at people surveys that you probably do within your own company, look at the different demographics and how people, what people are telling you, and then get out there and host listening sessions and talk to people that are different than you. And find out what their challenges are like and their experiences. Because I really don't think that you can solve problems as it relates to challenges or inequity unless you ask. And unless you really get to know and get to understand. And I find that it's really important to lean into difference. And that'll help you to have a, a broader perspective on different challenges that your organization might be presenting unintentionally. That's great. Well, Karen, this has been fantastic. We've got to wrap things up here. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and share all of your or some of your experience and wisdom, especially as it relates to diversity and inclusion. Uh, it's been really uh, eye-opening and, and wonderful for me, and I know it has been for our listeners as well. So thank you again for coming on the Talent Development Hot Seat. Thank you. Thanks for including me. All right. Take care. If you're looking for a place to connect with colleagues and peers from your industry and find out what other people in talent development are working on, you need to check out the brand new Talent Development Think Tank membership community. Inside, we have members from companies all over the world who are working on all different things in talent development and sharing what's been working, what's been not working, and answering each other's questions so we can all get our jobs done more effectively and be more successful in our careers. If you'd like to join us, we'd love to have you. Just head on over to tdtt.us slash community, and you can use code HOTSEAT for 25% off your subscription. That's tdtt.us slash community and use code HOTSEAT for a limited time for 25% off your subscription. If you have any questions, reach out to me and let me know and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening to the Talent Development Hot Seat. If you got value out of this show, please subscribe, leave a review and share with your colleagues and friends. We want to spread the word and add as much value to the talent development community as possible. And we need your help. As always, you can find more information and connect with me at talentdevelopmenthotseat.com. Take care.